Welcome, everybody. My name is Brad Elder, neurosurgeon at Ohio State University, and I'm hosting a, another in a series of guidelines podcasts. Tonight's guideline podcast is regarding the paper, Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines for Deep Brain Stimulations for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, which is an update of the 2014 guidelines. We have three authors of the paper uh, joining us tonight. I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves and then give a brief uh, synopsis of their work, and then we'll turn it over to questions from myself, as well as we have three guest host residents. Dr. Politsis. Thanks so much, Brad. Um, uh, my name is Julie Politsis. I'm the chair of the Department of Neuroscience and Experimental Therapeutics and the chief of the Division of Functional Neurosurgery at Albany Medical College. Uh, I'm also the current treasurer of ASSFN. Great. I'm Nader Paradian. Thanks for the opportunity to participate as well. I'm a neurosurgeon at UT Southwestern and I'm a past chair of the Guidelines Committee for the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. Thank you very much. I'm Michael Stout. I'm a functional neurosurgeon, assistant professor of neurosurgery at Oakland University, Wayne Beaumont School of Medicine in Southeast Michigan. Great. Uh, Dr. Stout, if you could go ahead and give us a synopsis of the uh, paper, all your guys' hard work, that'd be great. Sounds good. Thank you for this opportunity. So as you had mentioned, this is the update of the 2014 guidelines, which was originally published by uh, Clement Hamani from uh, University of Toronto. Uh, so this kind of builds off uh, a very storied area of neurosurgery, that being psychiatric neurosurgery or psychosurgery, even though the first case of DBS for OCE was actually done in 1999. And as many people know in our field, the uh, humanitarian device exemption was approved in 2009 for uh, ALIC, for the anterior limb of the internal capsule for uh, DBS for OCE. So based on a number of case series, randomized control trials, uh, the first guidelines published uh, in 2014 came to the conclusion or came to the recommendations that uh, there was level one evidence based on a class one study uh, for the use of bilateral subthalamic nucleus or STN DBS for medically refractory OCD. And that uh, at the time there was level two evidence based on a single class two study for bilateral nucleus accumbens uh, DBS. And at the time there was one study looking at unilateral DBS, but there was no recommendation made for that. And in the interim there's been no further studies for unilateral. So all studies have been done for bilateral. So what we did is we looked at uh, a five-year review of their literature and based on the, the inclusion exclusion criteria of the original study. And honestly, we actually didn't find too many new studies to include. We only found one new level two study, no new level one studies, and a number of level three studies. And so the recommendations we made are fairly minor uh, and mostly uh, relative to the wording, although we, we did change and add one target. So our overall recommendations with the new, with the new guidelines is that uh, STN is still recommended based on level one evidence. And then based on level two evidence, we recommend both the nucleus accumbens and the bed nucleus of the stri terminalis. What we did specify though with the new guidelines is that there's actually insufficient evidence to make a recommendation for the identification of the most effective target. And I think that's important to point out, despite the fact that there is level one evidence for STN that doesn't discount that the VCVS or any striatal targets is less effective than STN. It's just the fact that there's only level two studies to support the use of striatal targets. And so when you look at the worldwide practice of how DBS for OCD is actually done, pretty much the worldwide preference is to use a striatal targets. And as I had mentioned earlier, the HD, uh, the HD is actually for ALIC. So for most insurance purposes, you have to target the ALIC. 
uh, in order to uh, in order to get reimbursement. So that creates this interesting paradox in this world, showing that the the level of evidence has not necessarily kept up with clinical practice. And that was a big back and forth discussion we had with all the co-authors uh, and with the uh, JGRC in terms of how to exactly word this. And since the publication of our guidelines, there's been a number of interesting commentaries pretty much focusing on that, saying that, and the other, my co-authors can speak maybe more to this, in, in that research has pretty much been stymied since the HDE uh, because there, there's been no impetus to, to do further research, or rather it's been very difficult to do more research in this, in this realm. And therefore we have a lack of high quality evidence, especially RCTs. And really what we're lacking overall is looking at studies that compare these targets one to another. So I think we're kind of left in an interesting, interesting area where we're, we're, we're not really progressing in the field. That being said, I would say since the publication of our article has actually been a number of papers in 2020 and 2021 outside of our uh, literature search that looked at uh, tractography and individualized uh, patient data as more of a of a focus for targeting for DBS for OCD. And really we've seen that movements all together in terms of psychiatric uh, disorders. So I think that's kind of the next step. And when we look at the next updates to the guidelines, we'll probably see a very uh, a clear change and maybe our recommendations and our level of evidence and updates at that one at that time. Great. Dr. Politsis, Dr. Pradian, did you want to add anything to the synopsis? I'll just add uh, one comment and it's sort of a subtlety about what guidelines are all about. You know, there is level one evidence to support deep brain stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus for OCD, but it's important to point out that the level two evidence really was a good trial also. It was a randomized controlled trial, but it just didn't meet the strict criteria that we require for level one evidence. So I think it's important that when people think about the guidelines and use it as a way to guide their treatment, which is what guidelines are supposed to do, that they take a look at what the data is that support those guidelines and understand its implications. So I just want to repeat the point that you know a level one recommendation and a level two recommendation doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other. It's just that the amount of data, the quality of the data are on different levels, not to say that it's one target is superior to the other. I think it's a really important point to understand about what the goal of uh, writing guidelines is and how uh, they are devised. You know, I'd, I'd like to um, make a comment uh, that there actually, you know, have been this update and then the 2014 guidelines, yet um, oftentimes, um, despite this evidence and um, our own experiences with how well patients do, we really have a hard time getting insurance companies to cover this procedure. And um, I think a, an important contribution to the literature was this publication, again, to help patients and physicians show that indeed, you know, this is an experimental, there is an HDE, and there is good literature to support the use of, of this. In terms of targeting, uh, you know, we could have a full 20-minute discussion on targeting alone. And, you know, when we talk about these basal ganglia structures, and even when we review the literature, one group of investigators may call an area one thing or the other. And, you know, so it's important really to nail down where those uh, targets are in relative ACP space when you're considering targeting um, and to take a close look on some of the work that's been done in that area. 
Great. I want to give one of our residents an opportunity to ask a question. Jora, go ahead and introduce yourself and ask a question. Yeah. So I'm Jora Dollywell. I'm one of the PGY4s here at OCU. So my question was going to be just talking about the variety of different targets that are offered now. So, I mean, we mentioned ALIC, we mentioned nucleus accumbens, subthalamic nucleus. Um, I know, Dr. Stodd, you mentioned that tractography has been used to sort of help in targeting. Is that more or less standard of care for DBS now, or is that still atlas-based approaches are used for looking at different areas, I mean, given the variety of different targets that are offered currently? I would hesitate to say it's exactly standard of care yet. As we know, tractography is being used for patient-specific uh, targeting and in, in, in movement disorders as well. I think the failure of a lot of uh, psychiatric neurosurgery, DBS or psychiatric neurosurgery studies like in depression has prompted kind of introspection, what should be the next step? Because if targeting is, uh, is I don't want to say failing, but targeting isn't being um, um, is the same across uh, different studies or it's not producing the same results, then really what's the difference? In OCD especially, we see such discrete patient heterogeneity and with any psychiatric disorder uh, regardless. And so I think that's one of the big challenges that's prompted a push towards individualized patient data with tractography. So to get back to your question, it's not standard of care as of yet, but I think in the future it is moving that way. So if I can, I can follow up on, on that, you know, since this we're focused on guidelines right now, I would say the data to support tractography is probably the lowest level data we have. So it definitely would not make the cut for uh, level one or level two evidence or recommendations. Uh, they're really all correlative studies. There may be, but I can't think off the top of my head, any studies that have prospectively used tractography to guide the implantation at this point. It's all been post hoc analyses some pretty compelling post-hoc analyses that have come out, but there's no comparison to of on-target versus off-target stimulation with the tractography to really show that it's valuable. Now, I, coming from someone who was a very early adopter and advocate for tractography, so I do believe in it, but uh, when we talk about level of evidence, um, we're, we're not close to at the, being at the point of calling it a, a standard of care. Thanks. Meg, Megan had a question. Hi, everybody. I'm Megan Still, a PGY3 at the University of Florida. I just had a question. If anyone knew of any updates since this uh, 2014, these recommendations, I saw that you noted that there are certain subtypes of OCD that seem to um, respond less well to DBS. For instance, it says that hoarders tend to not respond as well. And I know there's lots of different OCD types, just as in depression and other kind of psychiatric conditions. Um, has there been any further research or updates on potentially narrowing down patient populations to choose for this DBS and seeing if that gets us better data for these recommendations going forward? Thanks, that's a great question. And, you know, I think when we're talking about any uh, psychiatric illness, you know, um, or, you know, even some of our um, neurosurgical illnesses, establishing phenotype and the difference between those phenotypes is, you know, a, a big high point in what's going on with research. So just because somebody has one symptom more than another symptom, you know, it's hard to know if they're the same phenotype or not. What happens in OCD? is there's such small numbers of patients that are being implanted and studied that, um, you know, when you parse down into sub-analyses, uh, you'll lose any um, either statistical significance or, you know, even more important than the p-value is, um, you know, meaningful data. And, you know, so I think there's been 
um, a lot of interest in the area. But, you know, to, to get back to what Nader's saying, um, you know, we're not close enough to having any guidelines in terms of subset uh, of phenotype and, and work there. What is the case numbers per year in the U.S., just for our listeners to have an understanding of of sort of what numbers you, you mentioned that the case numbers are, you know, once you cone it down to subtypes, you, you end up with small numbers. I'm not sure. I don't think it gets into the triple digits. I'll say that um, it's in the double digits across the United States uh, of those that we account for. But I, th I think it, you know, that reminds me of something else, which is, you know, it's not difficult to put a stimulator in someone's brain. The hard part is figuring out who to treat and having a team to take care of those patients. And so um, I think the goal right now really shouldn't be to targeting, target a certain number of implants, but really trying to still learn as much as we can from the people that are implanted, working with experts who really understand the disease so that the field can continue to progress, uh, which is one of the things that uh, Michael brought up earlier on that we're a little bit stagnant. So it's, you know, I draw a lot of parallels between psychiatric disease, psychiatric deep brain stimulation and uh, the movement disorders that we've done. You know, you asked about different types of OCD. What we know from Parkinson's disease that only certain types or certain symptoms respond. And, you know, our history in psychiatric neurosurgery is, you know, just to treat a diagnosis. And I, I think we're learning a lot and we're understanding that we don't treat the disease, but we treat symptoms and sort of different dimensions of those symptoms. And we're headed in that direction and a better understanding. And the other part is, again, you know, having part, just like we partner with neurologists and movement disorders, we, we really need to make, create these strong partnerships uh, with psychiatrists who have an interest in neuromodulation. Is the future of, of this type of research, you mentioned difficulties with randomized control trials. Maybe, maybe a, a starter question would be what what really precludes some of these uh, being able to do a really nice randomized control trial? Is it, is it the numbers? Is it, is it what, what, what are the barriers there? I'll take a first stab at it. It's a practical issue. When people can get implanted and know that they're going to be turned on and get the therapy, or they can get implanted and not be turned on for six months, it's a little bit hard to recruit people into yeah. a study. So I think that's one real practical issue from having an approved therapy or a humanitarian rights exemption. And I think, you know, to expand on that, you know, it's very small numbers. And then what we've also learned from um, the depression literature is as opposed to Parkinson's disease or tremor where you turn the device on and people get better. Um, the effects seem to occur over time. So, you know, even if you don't make study endpoint, you know, which is say it's six months, the patient may be doing much better at one year. So there's a lot of issues with the, the design of some of those trials. And, you know, I would echo what Nader said, you know, we have all these great tools now um, that we didn't have when um, the DBS for movement disorders was first uh, come about and a lot of skills that we've um, adapted um, from that in terms of electrophysiology and functional imaging and making sure that we get as much data as possible from the patients that uh, we do treat is really important. Are, are there any studies that, that mine, you know, or that, that use some of those national databases, like the, like a NeuroPoint Alliance kind of database? Is that maybe a place to look for, 
for some answers? They don't exist for psychiatric neurosurgery, really. The closest we come is that there is a Tourette's database that people are invited to submit their cases to. And Tourette's is right there at the interface of psychiatric disease and the movement disorder. But that would be extremely helpful if we could get people to centralize their data and their experience and standardize the outcome measures so that we do learn from the growing experience. So I think we should be headed in that direction, but we're not there yet. I just wanted to raise the point uh, that you you had talked about, Nader had mentioned that uh, a lot of real world real world data is expanding in this field. Uh, even in 2020, some of the earliest centers that published their initial patient series are now publishing very long term follow up, um, and they're expanding it to do uh, multi center reporting. So I think uh, in the absence of randomized controlled trials, the best, the next best thing we have is the real world data that's being generated. And so if you look up data from 2020 and 2021, you'll see that there are patient series out there. We have a third resident who I want to invite to ask a question. Vin? This is Vin Chambon, one of the uh, PGY6s at UT Southwestern here in Dallas. Thank you for the uh, updated guidelines. I certainly find it very helpful in, in my own education. Could you briefly give us an overview as to how you decide on a target? So say, for example, STN versus nucleus accumbens versus the bed nucleus of the strata terminalis. What are the considerations for each of them when you decide which one to go for? I'll quickly start. I'll leave this up to the experts, but I will say when we looked at the studies, um, in the earlier studies, I think the Greenberg study, which they uh, they targeted the, uh, the ALEC. When they looked back at their data collection, they realized that uh, a lot of the patients who were doing better were targeted at the uh, bed nucleus, and they actually changed their target more posteriorly um, over time. So it's hard to say upfront that uh, they're choosing a target necessarily based on um, based on one thing versus another. And maybe in their retrospective analysis, they realized that that one target is actually better. The thing I'll add is I think it's important to have internal consistency because that's the only way we really improve as surgeons is to um, have an approach and measure your outcomes and adjust based on that. So I would, you know, it, it's as if anything we do, any surgery we do, we don't change the way we do it every time just because we're, we're curious or because uh, we change our mind on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so I think one of the most important tenets is that you, you need to pick something that you're comfortable with because surgeon comfort and consistency is really important uh, and learn from that. And you know, as we discussed, given the level of evidence, I don't know that we have one better target than the other. Of course, the other factor, which has been mentioned, is also just reimbursement, which unfortunately does drive our field and our practice to some extent. And the approval is for the anterior limb of the internal capsule. So that is going to be a dominating force. Yeah, you know, just to echo uh, what Dr. Stout ha had said, you know, uh, Greenberg has a, a large series. So when performing uh, our targeting, um, we have used a lot of the guidance that they brought about. Um, and we um, actually, Dr. Stout and I worked together to look at the different targets that have been used and published in neurosurgery as well, so that to help people make an educated decision as to how to plan that relative to ACPC. Having said that, um, uh, to echo what Nader said, 
you have to have internal consistency and um, to take that one step further, as I plan ACPC and as Nader plans ACPC, they may be a little bit different. And, you know, even if we're talking about two millimeter differences, that can make or, make or break what my um, or his target looks like. So, you know, my advice uh, to people that are going to do this is look at the literature and look at the stories that people tell that do more of these than anything else and then know how you target um, and adapt accordingly. I think those are great points that looking at the literature, but also being able to have consistency and be able to, to look at your own data. You know, it's, it's why we do things like M&M and it's, it's how, we, how we make discoveries is be able to, to really take a critical look at how each of us is, is doing stuff in the OR. Do any of the residents have any further questions? Yeah, I have one more question. It's uh, Dora, one, more, um, friend, one of the residents from OSC, one more time. So one of the studies sort of mentioned that uh, with electrodes, you can target or you can uh, at least try to stimulate two different targets, such as the ALIC and the nucleus accumbens. Was there any data at all suggesting that targeting or using electrode stimulating two different targets compared to maybe just targeting one? with one trajectory has any kind of superiority at all? I know it isn't necessarily salient in the actual guidelines, but at least from given what you've seen in your own practice, is that any efficacy at all? I'll start with this one. So in the review that we had looked at, many, many of these papers, the electrodes traverse a number of different targets. And even going by volume of tissue activated, you're overlapping your stimulation targets. People call different targets different things. As we were saying, based on internal consistency and how you target, it might be slightly different by a few millimeters. But when you're looking at the striatal uh, target, a few millimeters can make a big difference in terms of where you actually are. So the short answer is yes, uh, stimulation of overlapping targets is happening because uh, along an electrode axis, you're going through multiple targets. Uh, but discreetly, no, it hasn't been really looked at at one again, superiority of one target versus another along the same electrode axis. I find it would be even more interesting and more complicated, you know, as directional leads come into play and as we're trying to do different things and as functionality increases in, in DBS, where we're even potentially able to stimulate two different targets at two different times. And, you know, so this, this be becomes really complicated. Having said that, um, you know, I, I, and again, you know, we're talking about factual guidelines, um, but at the same time, you know, I think anybody that has done this um, really is passionate about it because these tend to be really young patients that when well-selected do quite well. I want to give the, each of the authors a chance if you have any last thoughts. Is there anything uh, as hosts we should have asked, we didn't ask, or any final points you want to make? I'll just uh, say it's, a, it's an exciting time, and uh, I think it's a time where we're making real progress in psychiatric neurosurgery. And again, echoing what Michael said earlier, I think we're going to see a lot of progress over the next five years, and I'm hopeful that uh, the guidelines update in five years will be uh, more significant and uh, even more informative, but I think we've got solid ground to stand on at this point. Well, as host, I can say it's been great having three leaders in this field join us for tonight's podcast. I think we covered a lot of ground on this topic. Uh, I want to commend the authors who know firsthand how much work goes into putting together writing a guidelines paper. 
and commend you for a, a job very well done. This was a this was a great discussion. As you can tell, we had a lot of residents interested in joining us on the podcast. We've actually set a record tonight for for resident participation. So so I thank the residents for their uh, their great questions. And uh, again, thank the authors for their participation. And with that, thank you for listening and I wish everybody a good night.